What historians now call the propaganda movement refers to a period from 1880 to 1895 when Filipinos living overseas called for changes in the Philippines. Once, most of the reformists were Spanish insulares and mestizos like the Regidor brothers and Father Jose Burgos. Now, the new generation was largely made up of natives and Chinese mestizos. The beginnings of the movement can be traced to the publication of Gregorio Sancianco's book, Progress in the Philippines, where he called for the abolition of tribute, better schools, and political representation. While his influence on later activists is debatable, it's safe to say that we can give Sancianco the title of the first propagandist. Then Jose Rizal released his novel, Noli Me Tangere, which got everyone talking. At the same time, other nationalists like Marcelo del Pilar, Graciano Lopez Jaina, and Antonio Luna picked up the pen to protest Spanish injustices and to advocate for their rights. By the late 1880s, the Filipino community in Spain was organized enough that they were able to start several newspapers, the most famous of which was La Solidaridad. It would be this generation of reformers, whom I would like to dub the Solidarity Generation to distinguish them from early reformers like Sancianco, that we will explore in this episode. We will follow these Filipinos as they not only promoted the welfare of their country, but also forged a new national identity. This is Philippine History Z. In Spain, Noli Metangere brought Rizal fame and respect from the Filipino community with distinguished ilustrados like the painter Felix Hidalgo praising it. Back in the Philippines, however, it was a whole different story. The Noli caused a mega backlash from the authorities as the friars and conservative Spaniards tried everything in their power to stop its circulation, at least in the Manila area. The friars, whose power at times surpassed the governor generals, had the book banned and ordered those caught possessing it jailed. Of course, not everyone in the Philippine Catholic Church felt the same way. One close friend of the Archbishop reportedly called the Noli a very Christian novel. Nevertheless, had it not been for Governor General Emilio Terrero, Jose Rizal, would have been in serious trouble during a short-lived return to the Philippines in 1887. Terrero's successor, Valeriano Weiler, was not as kind and strictly enforced the book's prohibition. The fear and anxiety surrounding the novel's controversy was depicted in a scene from Luis Guzman Rivas' Pigmeos, a 1939 novel. The protagonist, Francisco Salvatierra, a veteran of both the Philippine Revolution and the Philippine-American War, looks back on the wave of repression that followed the Noli's debut thus. Quote, Thanks to a friend, 
Don Francisco managed to obtain a contraband copy of the Noli from a resident of Tondo who acted as distributor. In those days, unrest was in the air, as one would say, in Manila and its neighboring provinces. There were many confiscations and sinister rumors spread like a wildfire. People were arrested under any pretext and prison doors opened and closed as quick as a wink as the cells were filled with suspects. The authorities tracked down its circulation among the Filipinos and took the severest measures to suppress the powerful influence the book had on the entire country. Woe was he who was caught with that cursed book in his hands or under his roof. End quote. Not even Rizal's family was spared. One brother-in-law was deported to Bohol, while the town priest refused to let the body of another who had died of cholera be buried in the cemetery due to Rizal's book, among other reasons. The Nolis infamy even reached the halls of the Spanish Senate. Although then-Prime Minister Sagasta shrugged it off, several senators attacked it, despite not having read it. They even linked the book to a recent demonstration calling for the friar's expulsion. One senator insinuated that Rizal was a close friend of Germany's Bismarck, which Rizal denied. So what was he up to since leaving Manila in February 1888? Rizal first went to Hong Kong, where he got in touch with the Filipino community, which included some exiles of the Kavita Mutiny. He then went to Japan and explored the United States before sailing for Britain. After writing about the present conditions in the Philippines in Noli Metangere, Rizal believed that the native Filipinos needed to learn about their past and how exactly the present status quo came to be. He spent several weeks in the British Library and Museum reading different accounts of the conquest, hoping to find something that lacked the condescension and bias that most Spanish accounts had. Finally, he struck gold with an obscure 17th century book by a former Spanish official in the Philippines. Antonio de Morga's Sucesos de las Islas Filipinas, Events in the Philippine Islands, chronicled the first several decades of Spanish rule. By the time Rizal found it, the book had been out of circulation and practically nobody in Spain had heard of it. He was impressed by it, calling it the best Spanish book on the history of the Philippines and hailing Morga as a quote-unquote modern wise explorer. He decided to annotate it using all the other sources he could find, adding his own thoughts on Morga's observations. The most important conclusions that could be made from Rizal's notes are summarized as follows. 1. That the natives were not being treacherous when they resisted Spanish imperialism during the conquest. When the Spaniards failed to capture Buayan, for example, the Buayanes were simply defending their land from foreign invasion. 2. That ever since the Spanish conquest, the quality in Filipino industriousness and craftsmanship had fallen hard. On shipbuilding, for example, Rizal writes, quote, the Filipinos, like the inhabitants of the Marianas, no less famous for their navigational skills, instead of improving, 
have fallen behind. As, although ships are still constructed in the islands, almost all of them could be said to be modeled after European ships. Gone were the ships with a hundred rowers on each side and 30 troops. The nation that, at one time, built ships weighing nearly 2,000 tons using primitive means now has to go to foreign ports such as Hong Kong to give gold taken from the poor in exchange for unusable cruisers." End quote. And most of all, that when the natives peacefully submitted themselves to the Spaniards so long ago, they did so in exchange for Spain bringing them progress and civilization, and that Spain had since failed to keep its end of the bargain, bringing only corruption and oppression. This point was especially important given how long the Spaniards had insisted that the Filipinos be grateful to them. Ultimately, Rizal argued that the Indios already had a prosperous civilization prior to the arrival of the Spaniards who, in many ways, have caused the country's ruin. Rizal would spend the rest of 1888 and the first half of 1889 in London working on sucesos. Then, in May that year, he took a break to attend the 1889 Paris Exposition. There, he and Juan Luna's younger brother, Antonio, formed two mutual aid clubs for natives in Europe. The first was the Kidlat Club, or Lightning Club, and its successor, Indios Bravos. The native Filipinos had been impressed by the courage and strength shown by Native American performers during a Wild West show that they saw at the exposition, and wanted to show the world that they too were also brave Indians. At the time, the term Filipino was mostly reserved for insulares, while the natives were simply dismissed as indios. Natives like Rizal and Luna wanted to create a new Filipino identity that embraced all races. The first step to doing this was by turning the pejorative indio into something they could take pride in. A racist Spaniard could insult them by just calling them indio, and they could just shout back, Yes, I am an Indio, a brave Indian. As the Filipino community in Spain became more organized, so did they become more divided. From the beginning, there was a strong racial element that threatened to tear the propaganda movement apart. As we've said in episode 6, Filipinos with Spanish blood were always able to assimilate more easily in Europe. In the mid to late 19th century, the idea of a Filipino nation did not exist, with everyone, and I mean everyone, still seeing the Philippines as a Spanish province. So it was not hard for many insulares and Spanish mestizos to see themselves as Spanish first and Filipino second, since they basically enjoyed the same rights and opportunities as their peninsular brethren. Native Filipinos and I'm including Chinese mestizos here as those who did not go back to China with their fathers identified themselves with the Indios, did not have that luxury since the color of their skin prevented them from enjoying the same opportunities as the other citizens of the Spanish Empire. Not surprisingly, this made them identify more with the land of their birth. 
These differences in outlook created friction among all these groups. While insulares and Spanish mestizos supported milder reforms like Cortes representation, natives like Antonio Luna and Graciano Lopez Jaina supported more radical reforms like expelling the friars. Luna and Lopez Jaina would frequently complain to Rizal about their distrust of the insulares and Spanish mestizos. Even Rizal, for all his claims of Filipino unity and post-racialism, didn't exactly acknowledge his insular and mestizo friends as equals due to their different experiences. One of Rizal's old classmates from Ateneo, the Philippine-born Spanish writer and politician Javier Gomez de la Selna, recalled having an argument with Rizal over the Philippines' place in the Spanish Empire. Rizal did not share Selna's optimism about Spain's magnanimity towards the Philippines, or whether the friars would ever be kicked out of the colony. One day, Rizal bluntly told Selna that he could not be considered one of the Indios, nor could he ever understand their pessimism. When Selna asked why, Rizal simply pointed to the colors of their skins. Such racial tensions prevented a truly united Filipino bloc from forming and killed off some of the propaganda movement's earliest campaigns. Take, for example, the Spain-based newspaper España and Filipinas, which was staffed by members of all the different Filipino races. When the more conservative insulares and mestizos saw that the paper was becoming more liberal than they could stomach, they pulled out their funds and the paper died. As more Spanish Filipinos withdrew from Philippine-related politics, more Indios stepped up in their place. Eventually, the propaganda movement for the rights of all Filipinos became a mostly native Filipino affair. Rizal would rise to become one of its indisputable leaders, but soon he would be joined by a politically active writer and activist from the colony, who would also make a name for himself in the metropole. In mid-1888, as Spanish conservatives continued to have the Nolimetanghere band, an anonymous writer using the nom de guerre, Plaridel, started defending Rizal's work in a Spanish newspaper. Later, a Dominican friar published a Tagalog pamphlet titled, Kaingat Kayo, or Beware, which more or less warned the natives that they would go to hell if they read the Noli. In response, Plaridel released his own sarcastic pamphlet using the same title, only this time in defense of the book, where he made fun of the friars whom he accused of distorting the Christian religion. After reading Plaridel's first defense of his book, Rizal told his friend and fellow propagandist Mariano Ponce that he would die happy if there were a hundred Plaridels. In reality, Plaridel was a lawyer and journalist named Marcelo Hilario del Pilar. Born on August 30, 1850 in Bulacan to a Principalia family, he was around 10 years older than Rizal. Like Rizal, he also studied in the University of Santo Tomas, although he was forced to drop his studies in 1870 after a fight with a parish priest over excessive fees at a baptism, 
eventually earning his law license 10 years later. Also like Rizal, Del Pilar's life was shaken by the turbulent events of 1872 when his roommate, a Filipino priest named Mariano Sevilla, was deported along with his brother to the Marianas. A prolific writer in Tagalog and Spanish, Del Pilar was one of the founders of the first bilingual newspaper in the Philippines, the Diaryong Tagalog, in 1882. Though it was nominally under the ownership of a liberal peninsular, it was really Del Pilar and the paper's business manager, Basilio Moran, who were the real brains behind it. Del Pilar wrote scathing articles attacking the Spanish friars and their influence over the country. He even took a step further by making parodies of prayers like the Lord's Prayer. Del Pilar would soon find himself in hot water, and on October 28, 1888, he left Manila for Spain. By early 1889, he and Rizal were already writing to each other, starting their partnership and friendship. Anyway, I found Del Pilar's activities before moving to Spain so interesting that I decided to make a special episode on it. Watch out for our special episode on Plaridel, which will be released once the season is finished, around 2021. In January 1889, Barcelona's Filipino community decided to try their hand at starting a second newspaper. They were joined by Del Pilar, and on February 15, the first issue of La Solidaridad, Solidarity, hit stores. The newspaper shared the same name as an organization formed by the Barcelona community during their 1888 New Year's Eve banquet. Unlike España and Filipinas, La Solidaridad would mostly be run by Chinese mestizos and natives, with collaborations from their Spanish and other European allies. In the beginning, the chief editor of the newspaper was Graciano López Jaina. Though he was a passionate and effective speaker who could rouse the crowd into action and had connections to Spanish political circles, Jaina wasn't much of a writer. He either could not or would not analyze topics as carefully as Rizal and Del Pilar did, mostly speaking off the cuff. He was also known for constantly being broke and lazy, spending most of his time in cafes where his fellow propagandists had to pay for his drinks to get him to write something. Thus, by December 1889, Del Pilar had replaced Jaina as chief editor of La Solidaridad. Filipino nationalists in Europe quickly embraced the first issues of the paper. 400 copies were also smuggled into the Philippines, where the government tried to stifle its circulation. By the end of the newspaper's first year, the colonial government was opening registered mail to intercept it. Besides Ponce, Del Pilar, and Lopez Jaina, other contributors included Rizal himself, Ferdinand Blumentritt, and Antonio Luna. They were also supported by the Filipino-friendly organization, the Asociación Hispano-Filipina, 
the Hispano-Filipino Association, headed by Rizal's mentor and friend Miguel Moraita, who also initiated many Filipinos into the Freemasons. I'm going to pause here to discuss Freemasonry. First, what is Freemasonry? The simplest explanation I can give is that it was and is a movement that promotes fraternity and good works among its members. By forming networks with countless fellow members, Freemasons could spread their ideas to like-minded individuals. Very liberal and anti-clerical, Masonic lodges provoked the ire of conservatives, especially the Catholic Church, with their involvement in numerous liberal movements in Europe during the 19th century. There was also a Freemason presence in the revolutions in Spanish America, which further made conservatives in other parts of the empire suspicious of them. So unlike today, when one could simply openly declare themselves a Freemason, back then, you had to be very much hush-hush about it. Masonry had a presence in the Philippines since at least the 18th century, with lodges formed by British merchants there and later Spanish soldiers and merchants. No Indios were allowed to join until the late 1860s and 1870s, when they started getting inducted into Masonic lodges in Spanish Philippines. This did not last long, as they were all exiled in the aftermath of the 1872 mutiny. When non-white Filipinos started traveling en masse to Europe, where the color of their skin did not bar them from membership, Indios and Chinese mestizos joined Spanish Masonic lodges in large numbers, often initiated by sympathetic Spaniards like Moraita. Graciano Lopez Jaina and Marcelo del Pilar, who became Freemasons, would form two of the first predominantly Filipino lodges in Europe. The first was Revolución, which was started in 1889. This was followed up by the creation of the Logia Solidaridad No. 53 in 1890, which, like Revolución, was under Moraita's Gran Oriente Español. Del Pilar then asked Moraita for permission to start lodges in the Philippines. Moraita agreed, and lodges popped up in the colony as well. Joining Masonic lodges not only afforded Filipinos the opportunity to establish connections and solidarity, it also gave them the chance to freely discuss and spread ideas to other Masons without getting in trouble due to the secretive nature of Freemasonry. By establishing Masonic networks in Europe and the Philippines, Filipino nationalists could not only use any connections they had with Masonic Spanish officials, they could also form networks back home and share ideas on how to topple the conservative order and the reactionary friars. To no one else was this clearer than Del Pilar, who mainly supported spreading masonry in the Philippines for its propaganda and political value, hoping to use his connections with high-ranking Freemasons in the Spanish government for reforms. Rizal himself would also become a Freemason, adopting the name Unlike Del Pilar, however, Rizal had no interest in using Masonic connections for political ends, as he wanted any push for political reforms 
to be due strictly to the Filipinos themselves without any use of outside influences. In any case, Masonry gave Filipino nationalists the opportunity to create solidarity among themselves and make a united front in pushing their ideas. We will go more in depth into how Freemasonry spread to the Spanish Philippines and its effects there in subsequent seasons. Indeed, it would play a large role in the colony in the coming years. Meanwhile, the other side also got organized. Pro-colonial writers not only defended the biggest targets of the propagandists, the friars, but also wrote racist articles on the Indios and Chinese mestizos. One of the propagandists' biggest nemesis was Pablo Fesed, a peninsular who lived in the Philippines. Writing under the pseudonym Kiop Kiap, Fesed became known for his racist attacks on non-white Filipinos saying that no matter how educated he could be, the dumb Indio was still a dumb Indio. Another writer that became a thorn in the propaganda side was Wenceslao Retana, a historian and bibliographer. Writing under the pseudonym Desengaños, he wrote pro-friar articles and pamphlets that were just as racist as Fesed's. The two writers eventually founded their own newspaper as a rival to La Solidaridad, La Política de España and Filipinas, Spanish politics in the Philippines. The two sides clashed in a media war with Jaina and Del Pilar at the forefront. Though he had no interest in polemics, Rizal occasionally joined in, writing his own witty and sarcastic responses to his critics. Overall, La Solidaridad pushed for reforms such as the expulsion of friars, freedom of speech and religion, the promotion of the Spanish language in the colony, and the right to send representatives to the Spanish Cortes. On February 22, 1889, Rizal penned a letter to 20 women that successfully petitioned Governor General Weiler for the opening of a Spanish school in Bulacan, which was later published in the newspaper. Some of the columns were later compiled into books. One example was Antonio Luna's Impresiones Madrileños, Impressions of Madrid, where Luna recorded his thoughts on the Spanish capital. Using the pseudonym Tagailog, he tackled everything from bullfighting and cafes to Spain's ignorance of its colonies in a faux scandalized tone. Until then, most Spanish writers who had traveled to the Philippines barely had anything good to say about it, portraying the natives as Topistus' lazy man-children. Luna attacked this depiction by flipping the colonizer-colonized script. This time, it was the colonizer who was the backward savage. Luna's intentions were made very clear in the prologue of the compilation of his articles, where he wrote, quote, Everyone already knows the good things about Spain. Why not focus on the bad? End quote. As Rizal, Del Pilar, and Jaina worked on political reforms, others worked on creating a national identity by engaging in scholarly works on the history, culture, and ethnography of the Philippines. One budding expert in Filipino history and culture was Isabelo de los Reyes, 
a writer from Ilocos Sur. Encouraged by the Philippine-based Spanish journalist Jose Felipe Dalpan, who called on native Filipinos to write articles on their folklore, De Los Reyes wrote a series of articles on the folklore of his home province, as well as those of the provinces of Malabon and Zambales. Three years later, at age 23, he and Dalpan submitted these articles to the Philippine Exposition in Madrid where he won a silver medal. They would later be compiled into a book titled El Folklore Filipino. Another Filipino writer worth mentioning is Trinidad H. Pardo de Tavera. Though not involved in politics like his friend Rizal, he and his family had been a target of the friars and the government in the Philippines for years. His uncle was none other than the liberal reformist Joaquin Pardo de Tavera, who was exiled to the Marianas after the 1872 mutiny. Trinidad wrote articles on the Tagalog language and pre-Hispanic orthography, and investigated Sanskrit's influence on the language. His sister, Paz, would later marry Antonio's brother, the painter Juan Luna. Today, we have a more solid Filipino identity than during the days of Del Pilar. Back then, however, when Filipino nationalists were still trying to conceive of a united national identity, there was no such consensus. A Tagalog was still a Tagalog, while a Kapampangan was still a Kapampangan. One example of this could be seen in how the propagandists viewed the Silang Revolt. While today, Filipinos celebrate Diego and Gabriela Silang as heroes, I mean, we have movies and TV shows on his life as well as the feminist organization Gabriela, in the late 19th century, not everyone was crazy about it. While De Los Reyes praised fellow Ilocano Diego Silang as a hero, Rizal dismissed him as a power-hungry figure whose, quote, lack of honor and civic virtues, unquote, led to his rebellion's failure. Though both Pardo de Tavera and Reyes stayed out of the political movements before 1896, they were pioneers in the nascent field of Philippine studies and would play large roles in Philippine history in the early 20th century. To wrap up this episode, I'm just going to touch on several notable incidents that took place during the propaganda movement. When Antonio Luna's articles first came out, he faced a harsh backlash from some of his critics. One of them was a journalist named Celso Mir Deas. Originally a friend of the Filipinos, Mir Deas was incensed by Luna's portrayal of the Spaniards as buffoons and imbeciles. Mistaking Juan Luna for Antonio, Mir Deas wrote several articles bashing not only Juan, but the native Filipinos in general. The entire community was up in arms, most especially Antonio. If you already know anything about Antonio Luna, you'd probably already know about his explosive temper. You could probably imagine the rage that he felt when Mir Deas insulted his brother for his work. With the Filipino community having his back, Antonio boarded the next train for Barcelona and on November 26, 1889, 
he went inside a cafe for the sole purpose of, as he wrote to Rizal, quote, finding Mirdeas and spitting at his face. Push! End quote. The problem was, he didn't actually know what Mirdeas looked like. So he started going around asking every guy in the restaurant if he was Mirdeas. When he finally found him, he spat at his face and threw his card at him, causing a huge brawl. Had cooler heads not prevailed, one of them would have challenged the other to a duel. When I first saw the name Mir Deas, I actually thought it was a pseudonym and was a play on the Spanish word for, and I'm not making this up. Shit. It looked like Luna had the same thought as he later wrote an article in La Solidaridad on the incident with the title, and again excuse my language, Mierdas. In the end, the case was settled by a quote-unquote tribunal of honor composed of members of the Madrid and Barcelona press who ultimately sided with Luna. With this victory, Luna showed the world that a native Filipino was a man of honor and dignity. This would not be the last that the Filipino propagandists would hear from the now humiliated Mir Deas. In December that year, he denounced Mariano Ponce to the authorities for allegedly possessing subversive literature. The police searched his home and confiscated a few pamphlets, some of which were actually written by critics of the Filipinos. Just like with Luna, Spain's Filipino community defended Ponce and even liberal and republican newspapers in Madrid and Barcelona criticized the raid. Ultimately, the case against Ponce was dismissed. Even Rizal had his own potentially fatal confrontation. For example, he nearly got into a duel with Antonio Luna over a girl they were both interested in. Then, there was the incident with Wenceslao Retana. In 1890, Retana wrote an article where he made fun of Rizal's family, who had just been evicted from their land in Calamba. Like a lot of intellectuals, Rizal could take personal attacks against himself, but family was the one line you couldn't cross. Understandably, he flew into a rage. One day, Retana found himself visited by several men with a message from Rizal. Pick up your pistols, and let's do well. When Redana learned that Rizal was an excellent shot, he released a retraction, apologizing to him, and that was it. In both of these occasions, the natives were able to show the world that they were not just going to roll over for anybody, and that they could stand up for themselves. The Indio was no longer an Indio. He was a Filipino. This is Philippine History Z, a podcast hosted by me, Eman Lavinia, with Jose Ampil as producer and Marco Revilla as associate producer. Music for this episode is by Kevin McLeod, Alexander Nakarada, and Rafael Crooks, with sound effects from freesound.org. For a full list of music and sound credits, 
as well as the source of this episode, check out the show notes on the podcast official site, philippinehistoryz.buzzsprout.com. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at PHZ Podcast and on Instagram at Philippine History Z Official. In the next episode, Rizal writes his second novel. Then, internal strife tears the propaganda movement apart, ultimately ending with Rizal's departure for the Philippines. Once again, this is Philippine History Z. See you in the next chapter.